Welcome everyone to Creating a Family. Talk about foster, adoptive, and kinship care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the host of this show as well as the director of creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about how to prepare transracial adoptees for the transition to college. Transitioning to college for transracial adoptees is a time that can be hard for both teens as well as parents. I am so thankful that we have Dr. Amanda Baden to talk with us today about this. She is a professor in the Counselor Education Program at Montclair State University. She is an active researcher and currently leads their adoption research team. She is also a transracial adoptee and a member of the creatingafamily.org board. Let me also tell you that this show is the first in our Back to School series. Going back to school is exciting. We know that. You know, this new clothes, new shoes, new backpack, seeing our friends again, all that. It is so exciting for our kids and for our parents because we're back into the school routine. That's a blessing as well. However, it is also anxiety producing for both kids and parents. And that is especially the case for foster adoptive and kinship kids at times. We are wanting you to understand that we know about your concerns, we have lived your concerns, and this series is going to bring you evidence-based resources to prepare you and your child, help you prepare your child for the next school year. This show is one of many that you can find at our creatingafamily.org slash backtoschool page. There are so many wonderful resources there. And come back next week for the new show, which is Navigating Special Ed and the IEP and 504 process, a really important show, as well as in the following week, we will have a show on Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. So stay tuned and check everything out at creatingafamily.org slash back to school. All one word, all smooshed together, back to school. And I should mention that this show is a re-air of a show we did several years ago. It was great then, and it will be great now. Enjoy. All right. Now, let's begin by talking about the major developmental milestones for all adolescents that happen during the, choose an age range, 15 to 20, uh, so that we allow some variance as to uh, what they are, uh, their own individuality. Yes, that's that's great. I mean, I think that one of the things to remember with adolescents who are adopted is they go through the regular sort of identity and development stages that non-adoptees do, but there's an additional layer that can make things a little bit more complicated. And sometimes it's not always obvious to them. They don't always, often don't know how to articulate that. And that can be one of the challenges because some of the ways they're thinking about their lives, thinking about their identities, And thinking about their personal histories can be a little challenging, especially if they don't know a lot of concrete information and if they feel like they don't fit in with what's expected of them either in their own community that they live in or in their birth community where they might think about how they might navigate their birth culture, for example. So some of the developmental issues, of course, identity is one that is everyone thinks of when they think about adolescence. Mm-hmm. But we certainly know now that identity doesn't just 
become an issue during adolescence. It's really a lifelong, ongoing process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it does certainly become much more prominent and salient for folks during adolescence. Mm -hmm. And whenever we're thinking about kids trying on identities, like they try on clothes, so maybe one day they're a jock and the next day they're preppy and then they're goth, Those are that's trying on identities and it's perfectly normal. It doesn't always feel so, though, for some folks because it, it, parents might not understand how they're, how they're thinking about their identities. What about the, the developmental milestone of separation? That's another thing that comes to mind when we think about what adolescence, a, a typically normal developing adolescent, in, in those years, separating from family, and, and it ties into identity, developing their own identity. That's one of the hallmarks of that age. How does adoption add an additional layer to separation? Oh, it does. It adds an additional layer because... Already transitions have often been hard for adoptees. So they're early, when they were first adopted, they had a transition from their birth parent, even if they don't have actual formed memories, specific memories. There's a lot of uh, folks who believe that there's other kinds of sensory memory that adoptees have. So that transition from the smells and the sounds and the feelings in the womb and then once out of the womb once that, that transition happens to a caregiver or an adoptive parent, that's another transition. And transitions can be associated with trauma. A lot of times adoptees have experienced a fair amount of trauma throughout their early years and then at each developmental milestone. So that separation can mean that, that the people who they've become most comfortable with, the people that define them in certain ways may no longer be there, and they will be looked at as different. So for transracial adoptees, it's particularly complicated because Mm -hmm. they may have been raised, often are raised in white families, and so they may, in a sense, feel pretty much like they live a white experience. Mm -hmm. And people who know them from their community are used to that and expect that. But going off to college means they're going to go there without that understanding. Folks won't know that they were raised by white people, and they might not know that they aren't as quote-unquote foreign as people might expect. There's a couple of major milestones that I think of with adolescents too. So, you know, B.J. Lifton used to talk about identity hunger, and there's another term by Sands called genealogical bewilderment. This often happens then too, where folks are thinking about, what am I going to look like? Where do I get these traits? Where did I learn to have such a great sense of artistic talent that maybe I don't see in my adoptive family? Mm -hmm. I think Penny Partridge used to call it mirror hunger as well. And these different terms really show how identity, there's this desire and draw for finding some sense of continuity through Mm -hmm. time. And so this, this change from living at home as a high school student to going to college breaks up that continuity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talked about the transition itself, it comes to mind the moving in and, and now you're in a new place and you're standing out and, and at a time when you're not sure you want to, your, your parents are helping you move into the dorm and they're white and you're not. And 
mm-hmm. and you're drawing attention. And in your own circles that where you've been raised, I always say we become old news after a while. People see our children and they see our children as, as our children. Oh, that's Johnny. He's, you know, he's Betty and Bob's son. So that we don't draw attention anymore or usually exactly. as much. But just even the moving in experience, all of a sudden, there is more attention. And, and so it's that having to face that yet once again. Exactly. That, that attention also means explanations are required. Yep. And one of the things I see in kids developing anyway is obviously in elementary school, kids have their parents there a lot. So there's, those explanations happen there. But by the time they're in middle school and high school, parents aren't at the school as much. So mm-hmm. sometimes the kids want that because they don't want to have to explain and answer the questions that mm-hmm. they find intrusive, insensitive, all of those things. Or as one of my kids said, boring. <laughs> I don't want yes. to have to keep, I mean, you know, I'm tired of it. I'm, I'm past it. Yeah. So I, I, I get that. Now let's go back and talk about some of the, uh, uh, the term I have heard is the honorary whiteness. That's a particular element for transracial adoptees. What do you mean by honorary whiteness? Sure, sure. I talk about that a lot, actually. I think it's partly goes with what we were, we were talking about before, that when you're in a community, people start to know, oh, that's the family with the two Korean kids, or that's the family that went to Guatemala to form their family. So they recognize who they are. So they're not taken as a non-adopted person might be. So in a pretty homogenous community where there's only a few people of color and they are all adopted, they can get that honorary white status and be treated like they're another white person because they are Betty and Bob's child. And so they were raised within the white culture and they kind of get that honorary status as someone who's going to understand and behave in the way that fits white culture. But if they didn't have that status, they might be looked at as an actual immigrant Mm -hmm. or foreign person who is unfamiliar and may cause some folks to feel discomfort. And so I think that what's challenging is if that's not talked about and acknowledged, then kids may go to college and not realize that they had this honorary white status where they were really only friends with white kids and really didn't feel comfortable with people from their own ethnic groups. They go to college and people don't see them as honorary white people and expect them to be a Chinese person like other Chinese kids there or a black student who is going to be involved in activities that other black students are involved in. And so when they aren't prepared to know that it can feel very unsettling and they can maybe feel like uh, they don't know how to navigate the social element of college Mm -hmm. because of some of those challenges. We have heard young adults say they don't feel Chinese, just using that as an example, Chinese enough for the Chinese kids. And all of a sudden, for the first time, they don't feel white enough for the white kids. Mm -hmm. And so they are betwixt and between and and finding their niche. Yeah, it's a situation where often, well, not often, our children will be perceived as if they were raised by a black family, by black parents or or Chinese parents or Korean parents or Guatemalan parents, because that's the norm. Mm-hmm. And that's when I think back to the importance of what we tried to tell parents. It seems to me this is one of the reasons that it is so important for parents to make sure their children 
as much as possible, understand, know, and feel comfortable in the culture of which they were born, because they're going to be perceived as being of that culture. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've had in my practice, I'm, I'm also a practicing psychologist. When I have clients who went to college and struggled, sometimes they might say, well, they tried joining the Korean Student Association, for example, and realized that their experience of in their families was qualitatively different than that of the other students in that group. So they might recognize that their parents didn't have the same expectations for them or the same pressures, but also they also didn't feel the same level of comfort with some of the cultural norms. So mm-hmm. kids in the groups who might be speaking in Korean, for example, can feel off-putting to an adoptee who hasn't had much interaction with people who aren't adopted and are of their ethnic group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Do you think the experience of transition to college is different depending on the race of the adoptee? You know, um, there's no data that talks about that. So I can't say for certain in terms of any research that's been done, but I can say that qualitatively, I think there can be differences. One thing that I've thought about is international transnational adoptees, sometimes the access to their people from their own birth culture, so other Chinese folks or other Koreans or other Guatemalans, can be sort of one of the gatekeeping functions is language skills. And so adoptees who want to maybe for the first time really build a community of people of their own ethnic group may struggle because they don't, if they don't have those language skills. Whereas a domestic adoptee of color, a black student, for example, black adoptee may have a little bit more ease in terms of at least language, although they may not have the same ways of interacting within the community. So I think all groups, though, struggle sometimes to feel like they can fit in to that group, and they might have to do what I have called in my work reculturation, which really means that they are trying to reclaim some of the lost birth culture. And this is a prime time when it happens, after after high school, early into college, or post-high school, when adoptees are in the world on their own, and don't have that honorary white status, when they try and figure out, do they want to reclaim some of that lost identity and be able to essentially pass as a member of their birth ethnic group? And parents sometimes view this as threatening to them and their relationship. What would you say to parents who are feeling that? You know, I think I understand why they would feel that because they might not have ever experienced the pressures that their adopted children have, the pressures around race, the pressures around culture. Because frankly, you know, for a lot of white parents and white people in general, race has, for their their personal race, may not have felt so salient to them because it seems like Mm -hmm. the norm. Mm -hmm. And so it may be hard for them to identify with it. However, I would say to the parents too that these kinds of identity processes aren't about their parents. Mm-hmm. And so if they personalize it, they're making it about them and they're making their adopted children have to take care of them. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard enough process as it is so that you shouldn't be asking your kids to take time out of figuring out their own process to take care of you. Mm-hmm. Instead, recognize it's something that is helpful for them to feel some level of continuity in their life. 
mm-hmm. some level of connecting with a culture that people expect them to, to know. If they're out on the streets without their parents and they look somewhat adultish or late adolescence-ish, then people will expect them to know certain things. And that can be very difficult for adopted people. So I live in New York City. And so we have some very strong ethnic communities like Koreatown or Chinatown. And I've had some clients who who are really hesitant. They'll go and eat any other ethnic food except for that of their birth country because they fear the interaction with the people who work there and the expectations and that they will somehow be offensive towards the the workers there or they will be embarrassed by them or they will feel that they're rejecting the culture in some way and so they may avoid it Mm -hmm. Uh, and the embarrassment of being spoken to and not being not being able to understand Mm -hmm. or the embarrassment of not really liking kimchi and and that's an affront to (laughs) all of korea so things such as that in essence, I go back, I wanted to bring us back to what you said for parents. It's it's so easy, and it's just because it's human nature. But as our children grow up, it, it's not supposed to be about us. Right. It is supposed to be about them. And, and, and we should want our kids to feel as comfortable as they can in their skin and in this world. And if our kid thinks that this is what they need, and it quite well, reculturation may be exactly what they need. It isn't about us and it doesn't necessarily mean that we are losing them. I think right. that's the fear parents have is that I will lose them. And I, you know, that's the, the nature of, I think all parents struggle, a little, not all parents, many parents struggle in their teen years when their kids are making, forming identities and trying on identities that are not the parents are not the parents preferred identity. You make a great point on. And I think one of the things that parents might not realize is by allowing them to learn about themselves and feel comfortable in their own skin, they're actually going to improve their relationships with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's those situations where the parents feel threatened and they can't or don't support their children's explorations where a lot of the conflict comes in. If parents can get some humility and recognize that they can't be everything for their mm-hmm. kids. They can do a lot of things for them and they've provided a great foundation. But some things have to be done during adolescence. It's that launching period where mm-hmm. they are starting to learn to live in the world in their own skin in a way that makes them feel authentically a person. You know, if mm-hmm. it helps for a Chinese adoptee like myself from from Hong Kong to feel like I can really relate to what that means. I know what it means to be from Hong Kong and I know what that culture's like and I know how to think about the the people there and the and the community. It makes me feel less and it makes a lot of adoptees feel less on the outside. Mhm. Mhm. And and if you feel less on the outside in one area in your culture, the culture of your birth, does that carry over to making you feel less of an outsider? in your your adopted community, in your adoptive family? Does mm-hmm. it transfer like that? I think it can. I think, you know, the more you're comfortable in your own skin, the more you can build intimacy with folks. Mm-hmm. If you don't feel comfortable with yourself, it's hard to really be authentic in relationships, which helps build intimacy. Mm-hmm. And all of us but, needed that. 
all of us need intimacy in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Are there specific things parents and transracial adopted teens should look for when they're choosing a college? So when they're looking for a college, that's a really big question because mm-hmm. I think you in some ways have to know not you know there's a, the academic questions and then the uh-huh. social questions uh-huh. and then I also and, th- and your and the personality and the desires yep. of of the of the teen absolutely and a lot of times kids have an, an image in their head of what college is going to look like you know it's been formed by many years of various movie watching and TV shows and, and internet searches and so. If they want that very typical New England college experience versus a something that might be quite different in the South, for example, it's it's important to know. But I, mm-hmm. one thing I really suggest to folks is to think about the diversity of the school. You know, most of the universities around the country are predominantly white institutions, and that means that there will be less representation of many transracial adoptees, ethnic groups. So, you know, I have known, for example, adoptees who are domestic adoptees and black who've gone to historically black colleges and universities. I've also known adoptees who are Asian, for example, to go to schools where it's incredibly white. And so that there's very few kids of color. And I remember one person I worked with who went to a college where New England type of place where there were a lot of international students. And one of those challenges for that student that they had not anticipated was that those international students would look at the student and think, oh, well, we can, we can connect. I see somebody who looks like me. I see somebody who I should become friends with. And let's invite that person to have noodles with us or to go to hot pot with us where that adoptee did not feel comfortable with that, had never had friends of their ethnic group, and was a bit uncomfortable being singled out because of their race and ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And so there had been a very strong attempt on their parents' part to create a world where it was very colorblind and with good intentions all the way, but it's not a realistic world. So one of the things that was really important for her was to be able to start doing some of the critical cultural and racial analysis that helped her understand her own discomfort and her own identity. Mm -hmm. That makes very good sense. I just want to do a shout out to the Jockey Bean Family Foundation for allowing us to offer you guys 12 free online education courses. They are geared for those of you who are parenting, adoptive, foster, or kinship kids. You can find them at bit.ly slash JBS support. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash J-B-F-S-U-P-P-O-R-T. Thanks, Jockey. Check it out today, folks. One of the things that has come up when, when talking about when we were brainstorming about the outline for this show is the use or the complexities that are involved with using a transracial adoption story as part of the ubiquitous college essay. So I wanted to talk a little about that because there is nothing more common and nothing that doesn't rise to the level of angst for both college applicant and parent who is trying to make certain their teen is going to get into the the school that they want as the college essay. So let's talk a little about that. I think that 
it's an interesting dilemma about whether or not would-be applicants use their adoption story and whose idea is it to use their adoption story. So let's talk a little about the whole college essay and use of the transracial adoption storyline. Oh, I'm glad you asked about that. And I think it's so prominent. It's it's very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I'll get to the whose idea it is in a bit, because one thing that it makes me think about is a lot of adoption groups have tried to institute mentoring programs for adoptees. And the way they look at that is older adoptees mentor younger adoptees. Mm-hmm. And that is a great idea, except it sort of assumes that the older adoptees have worked things out. <laughs> and my, my concern about that is just because they've lived longer doesn't mean they've understood themselves better. Mm-hmm. Don't tell so, my kids that, okay? That's <laughs> <laughs> yours and my little secret, all right? All right, certainly. We'll okay. keep it between us. Good, but, thank you. <laughs> but I, I, I think that that's what can happen with these stories, too, because people say, oh, your story is like a movie script or something like that. It's got a great plot development mm-hmm. to it. And so maybe that's what you should write your essay about. But again, it it supposes that there's some insight, some growth, some awareness. And for an adoptee to, for the first time, to be writing about their adoption on their college essay, it may cause challenges in lots of ways. So I can see that, you know, someone's never really articulated their story and never really tried to assign meaning to that story. They can throw them for a bit of a loop. And it can also come across in a way that might make that person appear less insightful, more superficial, not unique. Because each person's story, although there's lots of similar junctures where things occur, the way in which you make sense of your story in your whole narrative is something that's a long-term process. So I don't necessarily think people should avoid writing about that story. But I think if they're going to, it shouldn't be the first time when they do it for an essay. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be great if they've started to work on that and work it out much earlier. I also think that the ways in which people who are not in the adoption community directly look at adoption can carry a lot of unintentional stigma. Mm-hmm. which And pressure. Yes, yes. Pressure to be grateful, pressure to be happy, pressure to be looking upon this is the, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow type of thing. Absolutely. I mean, when anybody finds out someone's adopted, it triggers all the adoption microaggressions that we know exist. And they're not because of bad intentions. They just are because of a lack of knowledge, too. But intention doesn't matter when it comes to these things. Anyway, in terms of how they write these stories, I think we have to think about how dimensional we want to be. I think all adoptees, anybody applying to college, I should say, wants to stand out. They want to be memorable. They want to have something that can be linked to them and shows them as someone who is a good fit. Mm -hmm. And so their adoption story for some folks really is that main thing, but it's not for everyone. Mm -hmm. Some -hmm. people, their adoption just, they have treated it like it's just another line on their demographics questionnaire. And they Mm -hmm. have not incorporated or internalized much of the insight that they could gain from it. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, it can make it a little harder for them to understand how to think about their adoption. They might be articulating in a way they've been told to articulate it, or the way in which 
the latest movie or the latest novel tells them. Mm-hmm. I think most adult adoptees, if you were to ask them who are 10 plus years out of college, would say the way that they looked at their adoptions at 18 is vastly different, vastly different than the way they look at it 30, mm-hmm. 40, 50 years old. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense because they have yeah. more life experience. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, adoption isn't always salient for adolescents at that age. They recognize it's a factor, but things that are more salient to them might be finding a boyfriend or girlfriend or being popular or something like that. And so understanding or, or their, their... Or their identity might be more tied up in being a, you know, a good soccer player or exactly. being a scientist or being a artist or that is more salient to them and seems more relevant to them. Sure. And I mean, adoptees who also have intersecting identities like our uh, sexual or gender minorities may feel that's a prominent and a more salient and more challenging identity for them to work through. Mm -hmm. And so it it can be good. It might be. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) So I think that doing the essay just on that can be a bit reductive for people. Mm -hmm. It it also bothers me that that it seems like that, well, I shouldn't say if it is somebody else's idea, it is a college counselor or a parent's counselor of this is your end, this is your, this is what makes you it. It feels like that it should come from the adoptee wanting to do it, not from somebody telling them, hey, this is a good, this is a good story. Like you say, it's a good storyline. It's got a plot point here. You know, we've got a story arc going that it should be if, if the adoptee wants it, then that's fine because then it is salient to them. But if yes. it's not, then somebody else telling them that it's almost like their story is being used in a way that they're not choosing. That's a great point. And I think when you think about the fact that there's a lot of young people now, because some of the highest points of international adoption took place in 2004, 2005. So many of mm-hmm. those adoptees are applying to college in these mm-hmm. years right now. Mm-hmm. And exactly. so if you see that, say, 10 kids all applied and all told their adoption story and they're all adopted from China, then you're also then being compared to them mm-hmm. and you're, the way in which you can write about your story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's I would encourage trying to work it out a bit. You know, I think a lot of times adoptees who are also in that situation, transracial adoptees, may have not figured out the issues around race that are very important in their story. Mm-hmm. And those things really change over time and the way people mm-hmm. think about them and articulate them. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Of course, they will be being compared with other 18-year-olds, not absolutely, <laughs> not 38-year-olds. So, absolutely. You know, yeah, so it's not that, you know, so so their their take on it will not be, will not be expected to be the depth that it might be or, or the differences uh, that even if it's, uh, yeah. All right, let's talk about a common emotion for adoptees is dealing with the idea that they were rejected, regardless of what in fact may have happened or no matter how, no matter how others try to interpret their story, definitely adoptees can sometimes interpret it as I was rejected. How does that play out with adoptees applying, assuming that your uh, adoptee is applying to numerous schools and we tell them to do a stretch school? And, you know, so in other words, rejection is a very common part of the college application process. How does that play out 
with a person who has other issues with rejection as a part of their adoption? Mm, it can play out. That's a great question. It can be play out a lot of different ways. One way I've seen it play out is that the adoptee might choose only schools they know they're going to get into mm-hmm. so that they don't have to face that rejection. Others may have that that experience of needing to be accepted be much more meaningful to them than actually the college acceptance could be or should be. So for example, if Princeton doesn't accept me, then no one will. They can go in that direction for some folks where they almost get into this all or nothing kind of thinking and they have it factor in in a way that doesn't really fit. So for example, I guess I'm thinking of adoptees who get rejected from a school that they thought was going to be perfect for them. Sometimes they may really take that to heart and it can feel more reminiscent of other rejections. Mm -hmm. So what can parents do knowing that this is a possibility? What can parents do to help their children? I think it helps to help prepare the child that I mean, the teen, I guess they're, they're almost adults, most yeah. of them. Young adults, yeah, yes. they don't want to be called a child. I said child, but I yeah. should have said young adult or adolescent or youth or something, yes. I think part of it's even talking about that possibility. But when it comes to thinking about the challenges, rejection from college is a rejection from first families. Mm-hmm. And it's helpful to make that distinction. But also the, the framing of one's adoption as a rejection story is very stereotypical, but also very commonly held. And and parents are afraid to bring it up because they don't want to play into that story. Absolutely. And one of the things I talk with folks about is that I get why people, I mean, it's, it is, it's very personal. And I think a lot of adoptees feel like they don't have any control over that story. They can't dig into it because they can't get the access. But the challenge is too, In a way, because the adoptee feels like this has happened to them, it makes sense that they would think that the decision was about them. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, almost universally, I try and help adoptees realize that the relinquishment, the abandonment wasn't really about them as people. It was an adult problem. It wasn't a a baby problem. Mm -hmm. You know, babies Mm -hmm. don't have that kind of power. Mm -hmm. But adults don't always have the resources or choices that they should. It can be a political issue. It can be a societal issue. Mm-hmm. But personalizing the rejection as being some deficit in them can make it feel, in a way, like it's a little bit more in their control, hmm. even though it's obviously mm-hmm. not. No, but but if it, but that does yeah I definitely can see how then that's a sense if I need control over something that didn't happen if it was my fault then it means I had control yes exactly and it's hard to it's hard to give that up because otherwise then the world's not fair and things happen without any good reason mm-hmm. and that's hard to accept mm-hmm. you know as human beings we're always obsessed with fairness and it just doesn't happen a lot and control. Absolutely. (laughs) And adoptees have lots of control concerns. Mm -hmm. Interesting. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our partners who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful partners include... 
Children's Connection. They are an adoption agency providing services for domestic infant adoption as well as embryo donation and adoption throughout the U.S. They also provide home studies and post-adoption support to families in Texas. Now, can the transition to college be especially difficult for parents of adoptees and transracial adoptees? We've talked about one aspect of the transracial adoptee, which is that uh, reculturation. I think it was the word you used, yes. Mm -hmm. And that can be threatening at times to parents. But what about just in general, that transition to college uh, of any adopted youth? Yeah, I, I think it is challenging. I mean, For launching and sort of empty nest issues that any parent has with um, launching their kid, that can be challenging Mm -hmm. because they're used to having a certain role, a certain purpose. They like to be needed. They're used to being needed. Some people don't want to be needed anymore, but, <laughs> but a lot of folks do. And yeah. um, well, their and their identity. You know, it's yes. shifting your identity Absolutely. because you are you're a parent forever. Yes. However, you are not an active parent when your children are no longer in your house. Absolutely. And another factor I think is that you know a lot of transracial adoptees have been adopted by parents who have a lot of personal success in their lives. Not all, certainly, of course, Mm -hmm. but they're used to being able to make things happen. And -hmm. some of them also take very active roles in trying to make smooth the path for their kids and always smooth the path. And then they don't get to do that anymore. They they have to allow their child to make mistakes. And that's hard for some parents because they may question whether they've really prepared their children or not. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they undermine their child's sense of autonomy and capability and competence if only mom and dad are able to make things happen. Yeah, I can see that as a problem too. Yeah. What about that transition to college? The parents' concern when their child leaves, they will emotionally not return. You know, the, parenting is all about if we do our job well, is, is we're launching, you know, we're, we're, it's planned obsolescence. And yet we always want there to be a string, doesn't have to be a rope, but we want there to be a string that throughout our children's lives, we are all tied together. What about do parents, adoptive parents have more often the fear, have we grounded them enough when they leave that they will be able to store, but maintain the string? Yes, that's a good question. You know, it's it's a hard one to answer for sure because I think it also depends on the kind of relationship they build mm-hmm. and the kind of communication they're able and willing to have with their children once they are launched. Mm-hmm. Because if there's been a lot of conflict during childhood or adolescence and if they haven't figured out a way to communicate effectively about it, it can be harder to learn that when they're not physically around each other. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things I would recommend to parents is to, you know, it's never too late to become humble and willing to listen and to learn. I think the things that parents can do that's most harmful to the emotional return is defensive reactions and blaming reactions Mm -hmm. and not being willing to learn about what they can do differently. Mm-hmm. which is another way of saying, don't make it about you when it's not about you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, a lot of the people that I've worked with who've had challenging relationships with their 
adoptive parents, a lot of it has been around communication, around racism, around other family dysfunction, mental health issues, substance abuse, all of those things can come into play. So if parents have some of those issues, if they've had very contentious divorces, things like that, it can be, it can add additional layers where the adopted person may really struggle to figure out how to Mm-hmm. how to develop an adult relationship with their parents, because that's mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. And, and I will say, having as a parent of children this age, I think many parents struggle with how to develop an adult relationship with, and that's part of what the this age, part of what college and, and the, the early 20s is all about, is learning how to form an adult relationship with your child. And I can see how especially in transracial adoption, that that might be challenging if you feel threatened and are not open to listening to what your child is learning in this journey that they're on. I think that's very true. Mm -hmm. Very true. You know, another thing that happens or could can happen during this time is if an adoptee has not been raised in an open adoption, generally the laws are such that birth parent searches can take place usually at age 18 uh, or thereabouts, or, or the young person is, is autonomous enough, even if it's an international and there's not a law prohibiting it there, at this point could be ready and able to do it. So it seems like that also can complicate this, this time period and this transition to in the early years of college if an adoptee is doing that at the same time. Yes, I think that's very true. So birth parent search is such a complicated issue. It's a the, show unto itself. <laughs> it is, it is. It's, impo- it's very important. And, and there's often been a lot of conflict even within the community about who gets to search and when they get to search. Mm-hmm. And I've met many adoptive parents who are trying to do the search for their children, even though their children don't necessarily know... <sighs> how to handle that and what to do with that relationship. Mm -hmm. So it can be very complicated. I think a lot of times they're not doing it with the support of a professional and they really should. And I don't mean a search professional. I mean a mental health professional. Exactly. But I think that because identity is so prominent during this time, birth parent search makes complete sense because during adolescence, young adulthood, there's the family romance fantasy where there's a belief that, you know, my other family would be this and my adoptive family is this. So one side's grass is always greener mm-hmm. in some ways. And then mm-hmm. there's also some of the functions of just sexual identity and dating that can raise a lot of questions in adoptees about their own birth parents romantic relationships and how they came to be. Adoptees Mm -hmm. who find themselves at the age that their birth mother was when they gave birth Mm -hmm. can have Mm -hmm. a very unique experience of that, which may trigger that desire for search. The challenge with the search, though, is that sometimes folks think it's going to solve all their problems. And it often just gives you new questions, even with full contact. But I think that 18 is such an arbitrary number. Mm-hmm. for when search is, is allowed mm-hmm. because someone may be ready for a search when they're 16 and someone may not be ready when they're 18 and may need to be 40. You know, it just depends. But I think doing both of those things at the same time can be challenging, but with support. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the 
adoptive parents are doing the search for them, but maybe are supporting the need for a therapist, for example, to help the adoptee do the search and to figure out how they're going to connect or if they're going to connect would be really a, a helpful thing. And to not take it personally. I sound like a broken record. (laughs) And to not take it personally if your child wants to search. Oh, such an important thing. I think a lot of folks, a lot of adoptive parents, even though they may recognize that search is coming, it's still a hard hard thing Mm -hmm. because they have their relationship with their adopted child and they feel like it's going to change. But one thing that I've definitely seen is that, you know, I don't think that the contact with the birth families really changes the connection at all with the adoptive parents. They still have their own unique connection. It may, in fact, often make it better, Mm -hmm. especially if it allows the openness to communication about adoption to be less complicated Mm -hmm. and to be more upfront. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes such good sense to me. It absolutely does. Mm -hmm. You know, I do think that Love is not necessarily a finite quantity, and you can love them, and we all love more than than one person if we're lucky in this life. But time is, and I think that is sometimes where parents get hung up is, oh, they're going to want to spend Christmas or birthdays or Mother's Day. Who are they going to go? I think that's sometimes what can trip up adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. But again, that's really our issue, not our children's issue. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. Now let's come to the practical part. Of this. <laughs> oh, we've talked about lots of things during this transition period. So let's now talk about how parents can help their transracial adoptees make a successful transition to college and really into this next phase of life. But that may be a little too, that may be flying a little too high for, for, for this now. <laughs> let's just keep it and make a successful transition into college. So what are some things that parents can do? So I think that they can start by really trying to help that adoptee recognize and be able to talk about racial issues, their comfort in their own birth culture and with people from their own group. So one thing I always recommend to adoptive parents is to try and have people in their families' lives that represent or reflect their kids. And so that helps them start to hear the stories and learn about how college life might be for a person of color. And when it's white parents who've adopted kids of color, their experience in college may be quite different because of their racial experiences, the way people respond to them, etc. And so when there's those differences, you know, adoptive parents, all parents probably like to tell their stories of college or of of transitions and their kids may not be able to relate to those. So I think it helps to to help diversify their lives to make sure that there are people who might have some similar experiences. It also helps to have them feel some comfort in their skin around their community. So, you know, you mentioned my research team. I had a Korean adoptee on my research team who'd never had Korean food before. And I was felt like it was a great disservice that this was a master student, this wasn't an undergrad, that I had to make sure that I took this student for Korean food and to sort of start exploring that part of his identity. 
not that, you know, the food is the only way, but that's the way culture, culture is easy to celebrate because food, music, festivals, those mm -hmm. are sort of easy entries. But then the harder entries are developing real relationships with people from those communities. Mm -hmm. But food is an entry. is a, a definite uh, entry. Yeah. And a commonality. Yes. 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 I've met people who said their parents won't eat the food of their ethnic group because they don't like it. And I think it makes it then, it others it in a way that makes mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. connection to the culture a little more challenging. And I'm just going to say there is simply no cuisine in this earth that you can't find something that you like. So no cultural ethnic food that you cannot find something that you like if you try hard enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Absolutely. I always laugh because I said, you know, in China, they think hamburgers are gross. So <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And there's, you know, there is something, I mean, almost all cultures have, have some similarities and most will have a noodle of some sort. Most will have something. And so you need to, at the very least, do a little exploring. Even if you're a very picky eater, you can find something that you like. And if you, ha if you haven't, it, you really haven't tried very hard. Mm -hmm. Another thing I can say, too, is I think helping your kids make connections of other kids their age who are a diverse group of friends, you know, so that when they get to college as a Vietnamese adoptee who gravitates towards all the white students, yet the white students don't really let them in, it can be very challenging. Mm -hmm. And so it helps for, for them to have a community of other people who are living similar lives that they can vent to, that they can get support from, that they can get a reality check from. All of those things can be really helpful to making that transition easier. But finding the language to explain it, to explain what's going on, that there's some racial complications, or even that the honorary white status is not being recognized anymore, can be really an important step for the adoptee to understand why they're feeling what they're feeling. So would a suggestion be for parents to bring this up and talk about it? And 100%. The, the honorary whiteness, but there's another, there are some derogatory terms that are also used. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the banana, the Oreo, all of those things. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And bringing it up to our kids, even if they don't seem receptive, because another hallmark of teenagehood is to not be receptive to your parents' deep discussions. But bringing it up to prepare them to at least know that they have thought about it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And the way I suggest to parents is take your child on a long car ride, and that's when you can have real conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> when they're strapped in. <laughs> they're strapped in and they don't have to look at you. You can both yeah. be looking in a different direction. Yeah. Also, when the lights are out at night and you're giving a back rub and you're, you're talking and giving a back rub, although then they can say, okay, mom, I'm ready to go to bed, but at least in a car, <laughs> they can't really do that. Yeah. So, uh, absolutely. Yeah, so car, car's even better. You're right. So bringing up specifically the topics that we've talked about in this show about being not uh, Asian enough or not black enough for the black kids and not white enough for the white kids. Or, right. or here's, here's another issue that I also, this is going back, not on the tips that I have heard when we have talked with panels of transracial adoptees. It's interesting because some find it as a plus and some find it as a negative, And I think they probably all on some level find it tiring. And that is being the bridge between the white kids and the kids of color. 
Mm-hmm. And because in a way they are the bridge. And it's been interesting to me that some in this age, when we've talked with young, uh, this age, you know, the, in their twenties, transracial adoptees, some find it as a, yeah, this is a real leg up for me. Others find it as just a, a tiring nuisance if, about always having to do it. So, I mean, that's something else to talk about from a parent standpoint, but also have you also seen that with transracial adoptees in this age? Oh, yeah, definitely. But the bridge status also means that they have to kind of understand both perspectives. Mm-hmm. And I found that sometimes adolescent adoptees, they want to emphasize what's similar, not necessarily what's different. And so it's sometimes they're not ready to be the bridge yet because they haven't figured out the way in which they might experience oppression, for example, or people are experiencing microaggressions. They may not yet be there. I think mm-hmm. kids that were with with the internet, with social media, they are more aware. Things like Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. other movements on for racial justice have been really helpful in helping kids start to articulate that. One of the tips, though, that I was going to say as well is that all of these suggestions for parents to talk to their kids presupposes that the parents have the skills to do so. And so I guess what I would recommend... Any suggestions on that? (laughs) Well, I think one of the things I ask parents to do is to practice. So some people, you know, we know that some parents have some, um, I'll go ahead and say white fragility around talking about race or even Mm -hmm. just discomfort in general. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I recommend they do is practice, practice, practice. And not with their kids necessarily first, but to practice with each other or with someone else who gets it, maybe find some friends of color who they can learn from and who they can then learn to be more open about these issues with their kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So another tip for parents would be to start working on their ability to talk about race. Absolutely. Uh, and that can go back to even picture books. I mean, time, but that's that's going too far back for somebody who's listening to this now who has a child who's going to be going to college in a couple of months. <laughs> that's probably not not a helpful suggestion. Although there are so many wonderful YA books. I mean, just not necessarily well, there's some with transracial adoption, but they're just some really good YA books, coming of age books. Jacqueline Woodson is just writes so many of them, but there are many others as well that you could read with your teen and listen. If, it, if nothing else, the book gives you a, a door into having the conversation about race because you're talking about the characters in the book. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Learn. I mean, there's a lot of great books out there for parents to learn from how to be anti-racist, white fragility, mm-hmm. um, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? We just published an, uh, it's uh, four tips for raising an anti-racist kid. And we listed books both for parents and, and then books for resources uh, at different ages of kids and then additional resources. I'd have to pull it up, but there's so, I mean, there is an almost overwhelming number. So we use some help in deciding communities of color helped us narrow our list down because the options are endless, which is uh, good. Yeah, that's good. It's No, it is. It's a good problem to yes, have. But it is hard to direct people when you don't have a yeah. clear direction to them. Yep. Oh, well, right fragility is a great beginning. It <laughs> but is. There's some, there are some others. Tanhasi Coates has got a great one that he wrote for his son, and I'm blanking on the name. Between the anyway, World and Me. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Another good one and directly relevant to this age because he was writing it when his son was, what, 16? 
So another good one in all of that one, both of those are listed in the four tips for raising an anti-racist child. Uh, you can find that on our website, creatingafamily.org. Okay. So any other tips for parents who are launching their kids off to college or their transracial adoptee off to college? We've given some good ones here. I would say make sure that, you know, one of the challenges I think a lot of kids who go to college during this time can be, I see that social issues are one of the biggest challenges. Now, during this pandemic, you know, I can't take that into account right now because that's created its own social issues. But in general, normal under normal times, if we can ever have such things, I think figuring out who you want to identify with and what kind of friends you want to have, what kind of person you are, will be a challenge. So for example, I've had clients who themselves aren't interested in substances and they find it very hard when the people they're meeting are all going to parties a lot and drinking or using drugs and they don't want to be part of that. So then they don't necessarily know how to build that intimacy elsewhere. And so one of the things I recommend to them and to their parents is to help them recognize, like start to learn how they can build those out of communities that they haven't been in all the time. So they talk about their previous lives. If they've lived in the same town or for most of their lives, they haven't had to build new communities until Mm -hmm. that point. And so putting themselves, taking some risks by going to, join different clubs and try and form more intimacy in just the way you speak to people with good judgment, of course. I think that can be a good help to kids who are struggling with the social issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you find that the struggle for social issues is more relevant, more, more pertinent to transracial adoptees, or is that more of a general suggestion for all children, including yeah. adoptees? I think it's both. I think that transracial adoptees, because of the racial issues, may struggle a little bit more figuring out who their home people are, if you will, Mm -hmm. you know, so they might find, you know, I've had parents talk to me about how their adopted teen doesn't feel like they're going to be accepted fully by the white kids, even though that's the people they might most identify with. Mm. And so then they have to figure out a group that will accept them and where they can feel some sense of comfort. Mm Mm-hmm. And vice versa, I've actually have heard it more, but just, but you would have more experience in this. I've heard it more where they're not sure they will be accepted by the community of their birth culture because they stand out. And that's very true too. Yeah. And so they, it's that twix and tween feeling where they're being pulled towards their birth culture because they want to be there. They want to learn more. They want to fit in more. I guess I should caution that. That's really, I found that it's South Asian kids, black kids who may struggle with the white students accepting them. Asian kids may gravitate towards white students and Mm -hmm. not feel like they could, because of that gatekeeping language issue, because of some of the other like Mm -hmm. cultural norms and skills that they lack. Yeah. That makes Um, sense. By race, it may differ. And race. Yes, it does. Yes. Well, we have really covered, this has been such a important topic and a fascinating one. Dr. Amanda Baden, thank you so much for being with us today to talk more about this. To get more information about Dr. Baden, you can go to the Montclair State University site. You can get more information about her research, and I believe there are links off of that site that will take you to some of her research, and it is well worth the read. 
The views expressed in this show are those of the guests do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. And keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice to understand how it applies to your specific situation. You need to work with your adoption or foster care or mental health professional. Thank you for joining us today, and I will see you next week.